every time I hear that, I want to dance a little, and I'm restraining myself for all of your benefit. So just so you know that. My name is Darcy Rossetti. It's great to see you all here today. I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker. Kevin Complin is the president of the Evangelical Free Churches of America. That is the denomination that the Compass is a part of, all of our campuses. It's an association of about 1,500 churches. Kevin and his wife, Becky, split their time between home and San Jose, and then the business office for the EFCA is up in Minneapolis. We are super excited, especially here at Hobson at Compass. We are going to be hosting the EFCA One conference uh, next summer. It's a business meeting plus a leadership gathering that occurs every other year, and we are the national host site. So those of you that know me know it's never too early to start recruiting for volunteers. And so if you want to be a part of that exciting time, uh, talk to me about that. We've actually even created an email, EFCA1 at thecompass.net. You can let me know that you'd be interested in being a part of that, and we're praying for that time as we come together with other churches, other EFCA churches for that. All right, would you join me as we get ready to dive into God's Word and welcome Kevin Complin. Well, thank you. Becky and I are thrilled to be able to be here this weekend with you at the Compass Church. We always love to be in local churches to be able to hear what God is doing in your community, in your region, and literally around the world through the ministries of local churches. And I've spent time with the leaders here to have the opportunity this weekend to connect with some of you. It's fun for us to see the good things that God's up to. And thank you, too, for your willingness to host our national EFCA1 conference next summer. I can't wait to get back here and see this room filled with leaders and missionaries from churches across the United States and literally around the world as we learn together, seek the Lord together, worship, and make those connections. Well, one of the things I love to do more than anything is to teach the scriptures, and I get the privilege to do that today. Would you pause for a moment and pray with me as we ask God to really be our teacher today? Oh, Lord, I thank you for the fact that your word is true. It is the truth. Your Holy Spirit's our teacher. And and so we now just open our hearts before you and ask that you would take the incredible truth of the Scriptures and apply it to our own hearts and lives in a very deep and personal way. And I ask, Lord, that you would shape us because what you want to do, what you long to do, is to be shaping us more and more to be like your son Jesus. And so we open our lives for you to teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure about you, but in my life, there are days that don't turn out the way that I'd planned. I have these plans for the day, and you know, this is where it's going to go, and you get partway into the day, and it just doesn't turn out like you'd planned. About a year ago, I spent a day with leaders from the EFCA that are focused on church planting. And we, we were talking about multiplying churches and campuses and ministries all across the United States. We prayed together, we talked together, we dreamt together about what God may want to do in seeing churches multiplied and campuses multiplied and ministries grown and after this exciting day, about mid-afternoon, I, I got in my car to drive back to our home in, in, in San Jose, and I got caught in afternoon rush hour traffic on the freeway. 
Now, if you've been caught in traffic like that, maybe somewhere here in the Chicagoland area, this was really bad. This was what would have taken me an hour and 20 minutes to get home. It, at the best, it would be three hours, maybe more. And I got closer to home, you know, it's kind of inch along, inch along, inch along, and I got closer to home and I realized if I take this exit, there are back roads I could take that would get me home. So I, t- I took the exit, got off the freeway, and I started the back roads home only to realize I missed a turn. So I turned around and I'm on my way back looking at that, at that traffic light two blocks ahead where I needed to make a left-hand turn to get back on the, on the road and I'm driving along and suddenly all I see is this flash of green as someone ran a stop sign and came right in front of my car. I slammed on the brakes, you hear the crunch of metal, the airbag deploys in my face. And the next thing I know, my car has come to rest on the curb and almost on the sidewalk next to this intersection. And my first response was, okay, am I okay? Besides my chest pounding from the airbag and a bad burn on my thumb, I realized I had all my appendages at least, and and, and I couldn't see much because my glasses were on the floor. I finally found my glasses, tried to get out. The car door was jammed. I had to kick the door open. I kicked the door open to the car. I got out, checked to make sure the other driver was fine, and he was standing out and checking his car out. And I turned and looked at my car, and it was a total wreck. And I thought to myself, I didn't need that today. Yeah, those days, I just, I didn't need that today. I think that's maybe how the disciples felt in John chapter 13. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament? The fourth of the gospel accounts. John chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples in an upper room to celebrate Passover together. This is what it says. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Stop there for a minute because I want to give you a sense of what was going on because truthfully, you know, I said some days don't turn out the way we had planned them to turn out. This happened to the disciples. They were so looking forward to celebrating the Passover with the Master, with Jesus, and, and as they were on their way to this upper room where they were going to celebrate, we read in one of the other gospel accounts, they were debating, they were arguing, well, it was really their favorite pastime. They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. They're walking, debating which one of them was the most important, which was the greatest. Then they get to the room, they go up the stairway, they open the door, walk into this room, and what they saw was a table all prepared for them to celebrate Passover with Jesus. But there was something, or should I say someone, missing. There was no servant. Uh, there was no one there to wash their feet. Uh, there was a basin, 
and a pitcher of water and a towel, but no servant, or maybe the better term is slave, one of the lowliest positions in their society. The one that would have been there to wash their dirty, dusty feet from walking the hot roads of the Middle East. Oh, they would have been willing to wash Jesus' feet in a minute, but not each other's feet, not after they'd just been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. The tension in the room, I can imagine, you could about have cut it with a knife. Uh, Finally, it was time for them to have this supper together, and so the text says they reclined at the table. Uh, Let me give you a picture of what it looked like, because it, it didn't look like this beautiful painting we have of the Last Supper where everyone is sitting at this long table and they're sitting on chairs. No, it wasn't a table like that. It was a table that was about 18 inches off the floor, uh, probably in a U-shape. They didn't sit in chairs. They, they reclined on mats. There would have been mats on the floor. They were laying on their left side, propped up on their left elbow, using their right hand to eat the food that would be placed before them on the table. And it was a U-shape so that the servants could come in the center and place the food. During the meal, the text tells us that Jesus got up and he took off his outer garment. He stripped down and he went over to the corner and he he took the pitcher and he poured some water in the basin, wrapped a towel around his waist and proceeded to go one by one around the table washing their feet. And now the disciples would have been mortified. No self-respecting rabbi, no self-respecting leader would humiliate himself to strip off his outer garment and become a slave. Until he gets to Peter. And the biblical text tells us, Peter says, No, you will not wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says, All right, Lord, then not just my feet, my head, my hands, give me a whole bath. And I, I wish I had a still photo of Jesus' face at that moment. I, I can't help but believe he had a smile. Kind of, there you go again, Peter. Well, Jesus finished washing all of their feet. He put the basin and the towel back and put on his outer garment, reclined back at the table. And the disciples now, they've been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus becomes like a slave and washes their feet, but it gets even worse. Come back into the text with me in chapter 13, because if you look down at verse 21, here's what Jesus says. After, this, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Well, they immediately started looking at one another. Is it, is it me? Who, who is it? Who is it in this room that's going to betray you? And, and so Peter, who was probably off on this side of this U-shaped table, and, and the apostle John was reclining right next to Jesus, Peter got John's attention. He said, ask him who it is. So John just rolled over, put his head right on Jesus' chest, looked, him, looked at him and said, so master, who is it? And Jesus said, it's the one who I give the morsel after I've dipped it in the bowl. And we read that he dipped a morsel in the bowl and gave it to Judas, who was on the other side of him, in the highest place of honor at Passover. And then Jesus looked at Judas and he said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Uh, Judas got up and he walked out of the room and the text tells us that he left and it was night Now they're really confused. 
Jesus humiliates himself and takes on the form of a slave. One of you is going to betray me. Judas just suddenly disappears. But keep coming back in the text with me because it even gets more difficult for the disciples. Verse 33, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. I'm going away, he said. I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. Now, you need to understand, these men had left careers and families and their homes. They'd given up everything to follow Jesus. And less than a week before, on what we call Palm Sunday, this amazing triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, he's riding on the colt of a donkey, people waving palm branches and putting their garments in front of him to come to, that, that they could walk upon. And they're antiphonally shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, Jesus was the star of the show. They were convinced everything was moving in the right direction. And now he says, I'm leaving. And you can't come with me. Where are you going, Peter said. And then a few verses later, Peter says, you know what, Lord, if everyone else would, would, would abandon you, I will never abandon you. And, and Jesus, the last verse of chapter 13, and this one says, so, oh, really, Peter, I tell you the truth. Before morning, you'll deny me three times. The world had just come unglued for the disciples. Their argument about which one of them was the greatest. No, no servant to wash their feet in the upper room. Jesus, the master, humiliates himself to act like a slave. One of you will betray me. Judas walks away. Oh, by the way, I'm leaving and you can't come. And Peter, you'll deny me by morning. When you get to John chapter 14, verse 1. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, friends, you need to understand, these men in that upper room, their hearts were deeply troubled. Their whole world had just come unglued and had gone upside down. It's like our world today. There are a lot of troubled people. Uh, just over the course of the last several weeks, we've seen, haven't we, some, some high-profile people in the United States that have taken their own lives. Did you know that 45,000 people last year in America took their own lives? Life was too difficult. I read an article this past week that the number one occupation in America for people taking their own lives are among farmers because of the economic tensions they're facing. We live in a very troubled world. A very difficult time. And what we find in John 14, the first six verses, is the fact that Jesus is God's answer for troubled hearts. Uh, do you see it? Look at it with me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. At the most troubled time in their lives, Jesus said, I just want you to know, I am the answer in your troubled times. I love John chapter 14, verse 6. Because Thomas, uh, Thomas who is, in fact, he's a twin if you look at the New Testament. And I love twins. Uh, We have twin sons. They're 31. We have twin grandsons that are six in our family. There's twins everywhere. It's just sort of normal for us. And Thomas asked this most pointed question. Jesus says, you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? If, If Thomas lived today, he'd say, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and even Google Maps can't help us. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is God's answer for troubled hearts. You know, in John 14, those first verses, Jesus talks about a place that he was preparing for us and a plan to come and get us. He has a place right now that he's preparing for everyone who knows him that we eternally can be with him, and he has a plan that we can be there with him forever. And then he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I know somebody who could show you the way. And, and I know someone who could teach you a little bit about the truth. And I could point you to someone who might give you life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Jesus is God's answer for troubled hearts. Five weeks after that car crash I told you about, on a Sunday morning I get a text message early in the morning from the wife of one of our two executive vice presidents of EFCA. She said, Kevin, would you call me as quickly as you can? Now, Marla never texts me, and certainly not early on a Sunday morning, and I thought something's wrong. I called her right back, and she said, Brian and I are in the emergency room at our local hospital. He's just had a CT scan, and it looks like he has stage 4 pancreatic cancer. It's like somebody kicked me in the stomach. My dear friend, my colleague... And folks, I have watched this couple for a year embrace Jesus in the face of life's most difficult situations. And I've watched them trust Him and people around them see Christ in them because they believe with all their hearts that Jesus is what they have to hang on to in the midst of the most troubling times of life. In fact, he told me not long ago, he said, uh, Kevin, heaven's getting pretty real for me because Jesus has a place for me and he has a plan for me. 
But you know, in the midst of some of those difficulties of life, Jesus didn't leave us alone to deal with them by ourselves. Remember, he told his disciples he was leaving? Well, I want you to look with me at chapter 14, verse 15. Because he doesn't leave us alone in the midst of this. It says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I love the fact that as Jesus is the answer for our troubled hearts, his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his soon return, and we trust in him, that's the answer. But Jesus gave us a gift. His gift is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to us that we might be able to live lives filled with hope. In the midst of the darkest times of life, he said, I'll come to you. I won't leave you as an orphan in a storm. I'll send, I'll send the Spirit to be with you. And not to just be with you, but to be in you in those darkest times. About six years ago, I was riding in a car in southern Ghana on a Sunday. It was actually Palm Sunday. And I was going out to preach at a church plant right on the Ghana-Togo border. It's, it's actually a part of the world that was the the beginnings, kind of ground zero for voodoo, where voodoo started in the world. And this church plant was filled with people that had come out of the darkness of voodoo into the light of faith in Jesus Christ. It was an incredible time to be with them. And, and I'm on my way there, and the, my cell phone went off and, and rang, and, and I answered the phone, and it was my friend. His name is Nuponga. Nuponga leads a French-speaking seminary in the Central African Republic. And he said, Kevin, I need you to pray for us. I said, Nupanga, why, why do I need to pray for you, especially this morning? And, and before he could answer, I, I knew why. Because in the background, I could hear machine gun fire, mortars being launched, grenades exploding in the streets. He said, Kevin, we're in the middle of a military coup. Uh, people are climbing the walls under the compound of our seminary. I'm not sure what to do with them. We're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And so I asked him, I said, Nuponga, are you okay? How are you? And this Old Testament scholar, he's written commentaries and books on the Old Testament, and he said this, he said, Kevin, I feel like the king in Chronicles, where he said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He said, I'm trusting the Lord, and he's given us his spirits to guide us and to empower us and to help us. Would you pray for us? And just like that, his phone went dead. Uh, you know what I'm thinking. My friend just got blown up. I mean, somebody launched a mortar into the seminary compound, and he's gone. I tried calling him back. No answer, no answer. All that day, preached at this church plant well into the afternoon and evening. No answer, no answer. I knew no other numbers to call in that city. The next morning, finally... I thought, I'll try one more time. I rang his phone. Second ring, he answers it. I said, Nupunga, are you okay? What happened? He said, Kevin, I'm sorry. My cell phone battery died, and I had nowhere to plug it in. I'm going, you're killing me here. I've been praying like crazy for you. He said, good, I'm glad. You've been praying for me. It's okay. 
I said, what's happened? He said, you won't believe it. He said, by the thousands, people have fled under our seminary compound, most of them, people from Islamic backgrounds. And he said, the Spirit of God has led us. We've been able to care for them and pray with them, and they're afraid. Pray that we'd have provisions to help them. Pray that God would use us. And I felt like I was speaking to a spiritual giant who understood that Jesus was what he could cling to and his Holy Spirit was the gift to help him live life of hope. But in the midst of that, the Lord has a a real heart for what he'd like our lives to be. In fact, you see it in John chapter 15. There's an intimate life-changing walk of faith is really Jesus' heart for us. John 15, starting in verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Down to verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He longs that out of intimates, life-changing walks of faith, our lives would be changed. That there'd be fruit, that people could see Christ in us. And and it's often in the darkest and most difficult times of life when we embrace Christ and His Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to live lives of hope that people see Jesus in us. I'll never forget the darkest day of my life. It was a Friday in June of 1999. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. I know because it was my day off. It was, the, it, was the, it was the first day of summer vacation for our four children. And they were excited because we were going to Disneyland on Monday for a week's vacation. And 11 o'clock Friday morning, the phone rang and I picked it up and it was our doctor. And the first words out of her, out of her mouth were these, uh, Kevin, are you sitting down? Now, I, I need to tell you, That's not what you want to hear from your doctor. I said, I'm not sitting down, but I can be. She said, please do. She said, you know that lump that's just below your son Brad's left knee? We got the report back. It's cancer, Kevin. It's it's osteosarcoma. It's a very rare and very deadly form of cancer. It's growing in his bone, and I need you to get him here quickly because we have to get him on crutches. We're afraid if he walks on it, it may break and send cancer cells throughout his whole body. Now, my first thought was, this kid is an all-star Little League baseball player, and he's been playing catcher, and now you're telling me he can't walk. The hardest thing Becky and I have ever had to do in our lives was to sit our 12-year-old son down and look him in the eyes and say, Brad, you have cancer. And I'm not kidding, his eyes were this big. And, and, and he looked at me and he said, Dad, am I going to die? What, what, what do you say to your 12-year-old? I said, Brad, we're going to get you the best medical care we can. Your doctor's working to get you in to see the top specialist at Stanford Children's Hospital. And we're going to get people praying for you all over the world. And we're going to hang out to Jesus and trust him. It moved us into about a 
12 to 15 month period of time, 22 rounds of chemotherapy, 26 hospitalizations, multiple surgeries. They amputated his left leg at the knee. And friends, I watched the fingerprints of God all over my family. I I remember one night our kids were asleep and the doors of their rooms were closed. I was on my knees in the hallway in front of our twin son's bedroom. My son with cancer asleep in the room. I'm on my knees crying out to God. And, and, and it's like the Lord just in his, his spirit just touched my heart. Kevin, do you trust me with your boy? And with tears streaming down my face, I just out loud said, All right, Lord, whether Brad lives or dies... I'll trust you, I'll love you, I'll serve you because there's nowhere else I can turn but to, but to cling on to Jesus. And it's like the peace of Christ just washed over my heart. Oh, it wasn't easy. That wasn't even halfway through our journey. But, but I watched the Lord shape the lives of our children. I watched him shape Becky in my lives. I, I watched the church come around us like I'd never seen a church care for people before. And we had opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Uh, one, one occasion, we were in the, I was at the children's hospital at Stanford University with our son, and in the room came a mother who said, my daughter's down in the intensive care unit. She's dying of cancer. She doesn't know Jesus. Can you go tell her about Christ? So I jumped up, went down into the intensive care unit. She shooed everybody out of the room, and I had a chance to lead her 13-year-old daughter to faith in Jesus Christ. And a woman from our church discipled her. A few months later, she passed away. And about two weeks after her memorial service, my son Brad and I are at the hospital, and he's getting ready for another round of chemotherapy. And there he's standing on his crutches, one leg, frumpy hat, no hair, And he said, hey, Dad, I've been thinking. Do you think maybe God let me get cancer so Angela could come to know Jesus? Because had we not been here, she probably wouldn't be in heaven today. And I thought, oh, my goodness. What's God up to in the midst of the challenge of life? And he was there every step of the way. In fact, our other twin, who did not have cancer, today he's a pastor. And you know what he would tell you? One of the reasons he's a pastor today is because he saw God show up in the lives of our family in the darkest time like he'd never seen. And he watched the church be the church in a way that he couldn't imagine the love of Christ being seen more clearly, that God just moved him to serve in ministry today. Now, lest I forget to tell you the end of the story, There were five other children that were being treated for this type of cancer at the Children's Hospital at Stanford University during the days we were there. Three of them had reoccurrences and died within six months after their chemo treatments ended. Our son Brad is 31 years old today. He's married. They have six-year-old twin boys and a two-year-old little princess. And last weekend, they moved into our house because they're doing a remodel and an addition on their home. And they're going to live with us for four months. Can I tell you, that family is very much alive. Oh, my goodness, do they have energy. And I watch 
how God has shaped my boy to love and serve him. Because when life goes upside down and our hearts are troubled, Jesus is God's answer for troubled hearts. And the Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to empower us to live lives of hope so that his longing for us, that we would actually live lives of intimate, dynamic faith as we trust him so people could see Christ in us would actually be lived out. Because in reality, Jesus is the best gift we have to give to the broken and troubled world around us. And just look at our world. It's a mess. And people's lives, they feel like they're a mess. And we have Jesus to be able to give to them. And I I don't know where you are in your life today. Whether this is a time when you'd say, wow, life is good. I mean, my job is great. My family's good. Kids are great. School's fine. It's summer vacation anyway, Kevin. I mean, I'm in school. Who could not love summer? Maybe that's where you are. Or maybe you just got a call from your doctor. Like a good friend of mine, yesterday I got an email from him. He said, Kevin, I was at Mayo Clinic Friday and they told me I have advanced liver cancer. Probably have months to live. But my wife and I are embracing Jesus because he's the one we have to hold on to. Or maybe you went to work in the last few weeks and you went in one morning and you came out with all your things in a box because you found out that your job was eliminated. Your marriage is in trouble. Relationship with your parents or siblings or with your children is not good and you go, life is hard right now. Maybe it's good for you. Maybe it's hard. I don't know. But what I do know is that today as you embrace Jesus, He has a plan for you and a place for you. And he has a heart for you that he wants to give you his spirit to indwell you so you can live a life of hope and people around you as you walk with him most intimately in those dark times that they could see Christ in you. And I to tell you, the times when I have felt the closest to my Lord are often some of the most difficult times in life. Can I pray for you? Because Jesus is the greatest gift we have to give this broken world. Father, I I don't know the details of each individual person's life here, but you do. And not only do you know, but you love and you care for them. You, you care for every intimate detail. You know, you know their struggles. You know their joys. You know those things that, that, that in their lives they're going, I don't know if I can go on. And today, I pray that as people across this room would embrace you and reach out and say, I- I'm going to trust you, Jesus, even though it's so hard. I'm going to believe you have a place and a plan for me. I believe you love me. Father, would you show them the incredible presence of your spirit with them? Bring hope to hopeless places.
that people might see Christ in them, the hope of glory. And so I commend them to you now. And as we leave, could we, Lord, would you help us take this message to our friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members who need Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.